Well, good morning, church. Good morning online. So glad you're with us as well. We are uh, continuing our work through uh, the book of Hebrews. Jeff uh, got us started with uh, chapter 11, and we're going to continue in that. I want to ask you to, to think for just a moment of someone in your life, someone in your story that you would call a hero. Just think for a minute who that might be. Someone that maybe influenced you in a very significant way. Maybe somebody that really came through for you at a very critical time. Um, So when I started thinking about heroes, I think one of the very first men that was a hero for me was my youth pastor, a guy named John Talley. And I want to say at the very beginning, um, as I think about him, that he is... He's such a, an obscure guy. Like none of you, does anybody in here know John Talley? But that man marked my life so deeply that I'm talking about him today. Uh, he was our youth pastor. Uh, he was a family man. I came from a broken home, so I got to see Uh, maybe for the first time, a husband loving his wife, training his kids, and then giving his life away to knuckleheads like me. He came alongside my mom, a single mom, and went way above and beyond to help her take care of me. And I I was a rough kid to take care of. He and his wife, Carol, spoke at my mom's funeral last year, and uh, it was just like salve to my soul to sit there and listen to he and Carol um, talk about their love for my mom and how they walked with her for for decades. And then long after I was gone, he, he still cared very deeply for her. He is one of my heroes. He isn't my only hero. Um, I could tell you about Kent Epling and Gary Run and Bo Miller, um, Dennis Rainey. So you probably have heard of him. Uh, But the Lord was so kind to give me a few years of my young adult life to follow that man around and see how he lived, how he loved, and how he served. A guy named Bill Wellens. Again, you may not know him, but... He was just as instrumental in my life in the founding of this church as anyone on earth. Those guys are my heroes. wonder who your heroes might be. Here's what I know about heroes of the faith. Four things. And I hope you will never forget these after this morning. Heroes of the faith. First of all, take God at his word. Secondly, heroes of the faith do what they're told. Thirdly, heroes of the faith resist the ways of the world. And then lastly, heroes of the faith endure the cost of faithfulness. Now, as I say those four things, no one does that perfectly. Right? I certainly don't. And none of my heroes did. But they stay at it. And hasn't that been the message of Hebrews? He's just saying, people, stay at it. 
Don't shrink back. Don't give up. Don't quit. Even when you fall flat on your face, just stay at it. And trust God for what's next. That's what heroes do. And oftentimes, it's the most obscure of people who just simply trust God for what's next. We say it around here as a value, a long obedience in the same direction. That's what heroes do. And that's what's true of these three men that we're going to uh, meet with in the scriptures this morning in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 4 through 7. These guys are really the headwaters of heroism. They are the first heroes that we find in our Bibles. If you go back to the book of Genesis and you start reading, it's just interesting to me that the writer of Hebrews, he went back and he got the first three guys. And that's where he starts with the hall of faith the heroes of our faith. He starts with these three men. So we're going to talk about these three men, keeping in mind what's true of heroes of the faith. The first guy is Abel. Look at verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The writer of Hebrews is pointing us back to Genesis 4. So you've got the perfect creation. You have the fall of Adam and Eve in chapter 3. And then they begin to have children. And their first two are Cain and Abel in that order. So Cain... Abel is number two. We're told in Genesis 4 that Cain was a worker of the ground, so he was in agriculture related to crops. Abel, on the other hand, was a keeper of sheep. That was their vocation as they went about uh, living life. We're also told in Genesis 4 that both of these young men brought sacrifices to the Lord. Cain brought a sacrifice from the field, a first fruits, so to speak, where he took part of his crop and brought it to the Lord as a sacrifice. Abel brought the first and finest of his flock and sacrificed that lamb to the Lord. Now, before we get to what happened next, I got to ask the question. I don't know if you've ever really thought about this. Sometimes we just read the narrative and we just kind of bop along and just don't really think. But have you ever wondered, why did they bring a sacrifice? Who told them to do that? And what was it for? There was no Old Testament. There was no law written yet. All they had was God telling them how to live. And apparently, he told them to bring a sacrifice, the first and best, from what they had been entrusted to him. I, I, I don't know how else to get there than just to assume that God instructed them to bring a sacrifice. Now, what's very interesting is they both bring their sacrifices. God rejects 
Cain and his sacrifice and accepts Abel's and his. Now, there's a whole lot of writing out there. I'll let you do the research on why that might have been. We know for sure, because this chapter is about faith, that somehow Cain, his sacrifice, his heart, something about what he, the way in which he brought what he brought to the Lord was unacceptable. So somehow what he did had a lack of faith. He just kind of did it maybe the way he wanted to do it, or maybe he did it with a heart of obligation, like he was just kind of doing it because he had to. Somehow Abel, his sacrifice, reflected outwardly an inward heart of faith. And that pleased God. God found that acceptable. Now, I want to remind us, I'm not going to go deeply into this, but it wasn't a one and done for Cain. He brought his sacrifice and the Lord said, sorry, that's not going to cut it. You're missing something very important. And, and he said, Cain, if you'll do what is right, everything's going to be fine. Which meant, if you will place your faith rightly in me, you'll be fine. Cain chose to disregard that. Took his brother out in a field and took his life. I wonder if the reason Cain's sacrifice was rejected was because it was his idea and not God's. I want you to think about what God did to cover, this is Genesis 3, Adam and Eve when they sinned. Do you remember that? It was the first death in Scripture. God killed an animal so that they might cover themselves. And then apparently, Abel knew that he had to take the life of his first and best as a covering for his own sin. There, like sin was standing between he and God, and his understanding was, I offer this animal as an expression of faith. And, and then we read this in uh, Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So there are sacrifices. If you read in the book of Leviticus, you can see that there's lots of food sacrifices, but there's only one that covers sin, and it's the shedding of blood. So with that in mind, I'm thinking Cain comes to God knowing that it's a blood sacrifice that covers sin, but he says, I'm just going to give you my food, and I hope that's good enough for you, God. God says, Cain, I told you, this isn't going to work. Go try it again. And Cain refuses. The Jewish philosopher, first century, Philo, portrayed Cain as a man enslaved to self-love. Jeff talked last week about the object of our faith and how important that was. And for Cain, 
He was the object of his faith. He was his own God. He relished kind of independence, self-reliance over submission. By contrast, we think about Abel and his mode of sacrifice and what happened as a result with his brother. Let's go back to our qualities of heroes of the faith. He took God at his word. He just did what God said. That's the second one. He was told what to do, and he did it. So he believed what God said. He did what God told him. He resisted the ways of, his, of the world, which at that point was pretty small, <laughs> people-wise. But his brother, I, can't you imagine? They're walking up to the place of sacrifice, wherever that was, and his brother's got a bushel of something in his arm, and he's probably looking over there going, Cain, what are you doing? And Cain might have said, oh, it'll be all right. And at that moment, Abel could have said, huh, I never really thought about that. Maybe we can just bring whatever we want to. Maybe we can just do things any way we like. He didn't do that. As far as he was concerned, God said to bring a blood sacrifice. And that's what he did. And it cost him his life. But he was willing to pay that price. He endured the cost of faithfulness. I think if we were to ask Abel, was it worth it? I think he would say, I think he would shout, yes. Because he was living for way more than just the moment. He was living for more than convenience or comfort or immediate gratification. He was living for something far bigger, far greater, far more glorious. And he got it when he lost his life. He went straight from there into the presence of God. The writer of Hebrews says that his life, though he lost it, through his faith, his life still speaks. And what is that message? What message might he say? And I thought of Mark 8, 36, the words of Christ. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world like Cain and lose his soul? That's a powerful message, isn't it? That's a life-changing message. That's a world-changing message. And that message was declared through the death of Abel. Interesting, Tertullian says this about martyrs. The blood of martyrs is the seed for the church. It baffles the minds of the world. Why would anyone lay down their life? for a word but it's because that word is about way more than this life it's about the next Abel the first hero of the faith and the first martyr who calls us to more now in contrast to Abel 
The next hero of faith is a man who was literally transported by God from earth to heaven. His name is Enoch. This is verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now, let me say before we look at Enoch closely, the fact that we're paired Abel and Enoch together, one loses his life at the hands of his brother and the other is transported straight to heaven. That tells us that faith doesn't determine any particular kind of life, painful or pain-free. You get what you get. And we're called to express faith, to live out our faith regardless of our circumstances, regardless of how painful or painless life might be, we're still called to walk by faith. And that's just what Enoch did. Genesis 5, 23 and 24. All the days of Enoch were 365 years. I can't imagine living that long. Good gosh. But it says Enoch walked with God. That's all that's said. And he was not, in the Hebrew it says, and he was not, for God took him. Uh, some earlier scribes even just kind of inserted the word found just so we would kind of follow what's going on. The writer of Hebrews says it explicitly, but Enoch walked with God and he was not found for God took him. Now, not everybody who walks faithfully, as you can imagine, gets snatched up by God from earth to heaven. In fact, there's really only one other one biblically, Elijah, and he got to take the chariot ride. I don't know if Enoch got that one. It sounds like he was just kind of more like, or in Jeff's words, poof, right? Um, but those are the only two. So living by faith doesn't get me a free ride to heaven, and I skip the death part. But it is interesting to me that God did that, and the only reason that we're given for him doing that is that Enoch walked with him. No spectacular display of anything. The only other mention of him, I think, is in Jude... And there he just makes a prophetic utterance to the world about the judgment of God. And that's really about it. All we know is that he walked with God. And that pleased God. That was his commendation. Sometimes we get so caught up in the pursuit of the spectacular that we miss the mundane of everyday life, just getting up day in and day out and walking with God and looking for how he might use us. Uh, I got a great email this week from a couple of ladies in our church, Heather Harris and Lisa Peterson, and they submitted a, a create your own trip, right, for fellowship outward, and here's what they're going to do. They're going to do a three-day backyard VBS right in their neighborhood. That's their mission trip. I love it. And, and in their, the, the proposal, they're just like, 
you know what, we're just, we're just trying to reach the people right around us and we figure, you know, kids are all around us and they got to hear the gospel and we got a house and a backyard and we know the gospel, so we're just going to invite them over to our place. And we're going to have a lot of fun and play games and sing songs and do all that kind of stuff. But those kids are going to hear about Jesus. And it's a step of faith for them because they're starting to think about, what will my neighbors think? And, you know, will they be okay with that? Like, is our HOA going to come down on us or what? I mean, right? There's just lots of stuff there, but they're stepping out. Which means they're just walking with God. Those two things are the very same thing. Walking with God is stepping out by faith and just doing whatever it is we believe he wants us to do to bring the good news of Jesus to a lost and dying world. So Heather and Lisa, thank you. You all are heroes for us. Stepping out by faith. Interesting, um, in Enoch's day, the world was getting so dark spiritually, it led to the point where he flooded the earth and essentially created a reset with the family of Noah. And he's our third guy. Skip down to verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is pointing us, or the writer of Hebrews is pointing us back to Genesis 6. That's where we hear about Noah. And uh, we'll start with verse 9, Genesis 6, 9 so similar to these other two guys we just read about. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Like, that's the deal. We have all kinds of ideas about stuff we're supposed to do and perform and all that. It's like, walk with God every day. Get in his word, listen for his voice, and then follow what he tells you to do and trust him with the results. That's walking with God. Noah did that. Now, here's what he heard, and this would have been a stretch for anybody. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Just that. All by, just imagine you wake up on Tuesday and God says, hey, got a message for you. I'm wiping everything out. Literally everything except for you and your family. Try and take that in. And then he gives the reason for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, down to verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now here's the key, verse 22. 
Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. He didn't come up with a plan B. He didn't make any kind of adjustments or a tweak God's specifications. He simply did what God told him to do. He took God at his word. He did what he was told. He stayed at it. Though the world around him, I mean, just imagine you're Noah heading out to work, building a ship in a desert for a flood that you've been told somehow by somebody somewhere that it's coming. Can you imagine what his neighbors thought? I, I think it probably went way beyond ridicule. It may have been incredibly costly. Like just forget Noah. He's banned from our city. He's out of his mind. He thinks he's better than all of us. But he didn't go the way of the world. He just said, I, I know what God said. I know my assignment. I'm going to do it regardless of the world does. And I'm going to bear the cost of my faithfulness, whatever that might be. It says in Luke 17, 27, they, the people all around Noah, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. So life was just kind of bopping along like normal. I'm sure they were all looking at Noah saying, look around, man. There's no flood coming. Why don't you get with it? Hang with us. Do what we're doing. He stayed at it, packed up his family and the animals that God led to the ark, closed the door, and it started raining. God did what he said he was going to do. And Noah is a hero of the faith because he did what God told him to do. And we're told he did it in reverent fear. And I want to say a quick word about the fear of the Lord. First, a definition. A proper, humble acknowledgement of God's holiness and power, which generates conformity or obedience to his will. Say that again. The fear of the Lord is a proper, humble acknowledgement of God's holiness and power, which generates conformity or obedience to his will. Said another way, the fear of the Lord is a serious concern about offending God while never in doubting, never doubting his enduring love for his children. When you understand fear this way, it's, it's not in opposition to faith. It's an essential facet of faith, especially faith placed rightly in the object that it should have. So I just say, where else would I place my faith 
than in the one who made me and the one who made everything and the one who will remake everything one day when he returns. Faith in the Lord and fear of the Lord move us to follow God fervently. And then our aim is to please him as a way of life, which points us back to verse 6. Some commentators have said this is the uh, pivotal verse of the entire book. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And that prompts us to ask some questions, I think. And listen, it's sort of like just going back to Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sin and God says, where are you? Do you think he's wondering where they went? No, he wants them to see where they are. So if we read, it is impossible to please God without faith. That is a statement, period. No adjustments. Then we ask the question, I ask the question, how high is pleasing God on my list of priorities? And it's not just a feeling. It's not just something like, I kind of sort of want to, you know, make God happy. It's like, is that the, the epicenter of why I live? Now, I don't do that perfectly, and neither do you. But I'm just saying, that when you look at the, the whole of your life, this says you can't please God without faith. And so you got to ask the question, am I living by faith? Am I making it my aim every day, regardless of circumstances, to please God by trusting in him? Or do I kind of have my own plan, and that's what I'm really going after, and I'm asking God to make it a great success? I think that's how we all naturally live, and that's what needs to change. And it doesn't need just to change today or next week or next year. That will go on for the rest of our lives. Another value, life change is a way of life till you take your last breath. It seems to me that pleasing God and drawing near in this statement of verse 6 are parallel to one another. Both are contingent upon faith, and faith is described as believing two things. First of all, that God exists, and that he rewards, and and technically the phrasing is, he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Believing in the existence of God isn't, isn't just the idea of, I believe he's out there somewhere, But it's an acknowledgement that because he exists, he has rights to my life. He is sovereign over me. I am submitted to him. That's to believe that he exists 
means you take all of that and you respond to him that way. And then secondly, you believe that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. In other words, you're never going to find better than what you'll find in him and with him. It trumps everything else in life. Then I ask the question, how can I make sure that I have that kind of faith? And here's what Paul says in Romans 10. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So I'm going to give you a softball. Where can you hear the words of Christ? Bible, Jeff, good job. Again, I, like, I wish I could say something really like you'd be scratching your head going, how did he ever come up with that? We hear from God through the Bible. That's where he reveals himself. That's where he tells us what all of life is about. That's how he tells us where to find life. It's all there, all that we need to know. Everything, Peter says, pertaining to life and godliness, it's all there. So how do you have the faith that pleases God? You get it by hearing, reading, receiving God's word, God's revelation of himself. Our faith is not ours or anyone else's inspirational thoughts. It's God's wisdom that he has so graciously imparted to us. Alistair Begg says, true faith takes its character and its quality from its object. Greg Kokel says, biblical faith isn't wishing, it's confidence. It's not denying reality, but discovering reality. It's a sense of certainty Grounded in the evidence that Christianity is true, not just true for me, but actually fully and completely true. God does not want your leap of faith. He wants your step of trust. Like Abel, like Enoch, like Noah, God, here's what God wants from you. He wants you to walk with him. That's it. And if you and I will do that, he will do things that we cannot even imagine. Each of our three heroes took God at his word. They did what they were told. They resisted the ways of the world. That was a conscious choice. And they endured the cost of faithfulness. Different for all three guys but they just took what God gave them and walked in that. Now, here's the three things about these. Here's something about these three guys. And this is why I said what I said about John, just being kind of this obscure guy that nobody knows anything about him here but me, but he changed my life. God used him greatly. And it simply was because he didn't just have heroes. He became a hero. And it's not spectacular. 
John just walks with God. And those other guys that I mentioned. And I imagine that the heroes that came to your mind, I bet you probably would kind of think, yeah, they, they walk with God. Not perfectly, imperfectly, but faithfully. The three characters we've looked at today and every other character in chapter 11 had no more power than you have to do just that, to walk with God. So what if we spent the next several weeks discovering what God might do through a group of people who just start with walking with God, getting into his word, seeking him in prayer, just sitting at his feet and taking his instructions. I, here's what I want to ask you to do for a so what today. I want to ask you to take an inventory of your life this week. Small assignment. How much of your life reflects the faith of these heroes? And how much of it reflects an attempt to manage life without having to trust God? It's a hard thing to discern, but I just know it, my natural tendency is to try and arrange life in such a way that I can talk about faith in God, I can talk about trusting God, but I don't really have to because I got it managed. So where are you stepping out to a place where you have to trust in God? And really, you have to trust in God much more than you probably think, but... We're, we're trying to get just practical here and just say, what am I doing, practically speaking, day in and day out, that would demonstrate a heart of trust, a heart of faith, a heart of real dependence upon your good Father? So take a moment, begin to consider that, and then I, I do want to ask you to prayerfully follow up on that this week. And then uh, I'll pray for us to close in just a moment. grateful that you have given us your word and in it we can read about those who have gone before us who really did walk with you and trusted you Lord we, uh, we not only want to have heroes we want to be heroes and so would you do such a work in us that 
that would be the case, that there would be others years from now who would speak of the redemptive influence that we had on their lives, not because we were celebrities, but simply because we were faithful. Thank you, Father, that you're kind and patient, that you are doing a good work and you will complete that work. And so, Father, wherever we are today, we, we come to you with uh, open hands. We just invite you to continue that good work and give us hearts to follow passionately after you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.